Luke chapter 1, verse 39. I'll read this for us. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, as followers of Christ, we know that in your word the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ, so do that. And as we see here in this text what it means to follow Christ and to put our faith in Christ, Lord, for those of us who have faith, strengthen us. For those of us here this morning who do not have faith, grant it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, more than any of the other four Gospels, Luke's Gospel, I think we can say, is the Christmas Gospel. This is probably the one that you read on Christmas morning if you grew up in a a Christian family. We could call it the nativity gospel because there are more angelic beings and announcements and Christmas characters here in Luke's gospel than any other gospel. Certainly there are Christmas themes in Matthew's gospel. We wouldn't know about the wise men from the east if it were not for Matthew's account. And though Mark doesn't really talk about Jesus' birth, he does tell us why Jesus came. In John's prologue, John 1 is perhaps the most mysterious and elegant of the Christmas accounts. But Luke, Luke is unique in that Luke just gives us the full array. When you read Luke, you find that you have more more time to to process what's, what's happening with the birth of Jesus, and you get more perspectives as well. This makes sense because Luke's account is a, is a compilation of eyewitness accounts. He tells us outright at the beginning of his gospel what he's trying to accomplish. Look at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Keep your Bibles open. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Look what he says here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now, now, now that many there, we're just going to pause for a moment. When, when Luke says, many have undertaken to accomplish this, that many there likely refers to Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. And because he says many, there's probably a few other collections of Jesus' stories going around the churches. That means... Think about what he's saying here. That means that there are likely letters written by people who saw the resurrection. 
And they sent them to their, their auntie in another town. And she read it at her church, or she had the, the pastors read it at her church. Maybe there are letters by people who were healed. Maybe there are some who were blind but now see, and they're visiting house churches, and they're telling people what Jesus did for them. We, we don't often think about what became of all the people that Jesus impacted during his earthly ministry, do we? But it's almost certain that many of them became church members and deacons and elders and evangelists and missionaries. Don't, don't you think, think about Lazarus. Don't you think that Jesus's friend Lazarus might have had an ongoing ministry after he was raised from the dead by Jesus? Luke in verse one gives us just this little snapshot, this little glimpse of what going to church was like in 40 AD. You're going to church and you're hearing from people who Jesus not only saved, but also fed and raised from the dead and taught. So Luke here, the very beginning of his gospel, is telling us something important. Many people, lots of people, compiled the stories of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus going back to the very beginning, even before his birth. But isn't it, isn't it curious that out of that many that Luke is referring to, the Lord in his good and kind providence has preserved only Mark and Matthew. Luke is introducing his gospel here. It will be a third scriptural account, and John's gospel will come later to the church to make the fourth. God has seen to it, just as we're opening up Luke, God has seen to it that out of the who knows how many accounts of Jesus' life there were, only these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been kept for the church as Holy Scripture. And we can be thankful for that, can't we? Even though there are already several Jesus stories being passed around the churches, Luke is telling us that he is being led by the Lord to write one of his own. And look at the reason he does it. Look at verse 3, Luke chapter 1, verse 3. He says, it, it seemed good to me also... Having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke is, is, is telling us that he's dedicating this, this book, Luke and Acts, to his friend Theophilus, who is presumably a wealthy Christian. Many people believe that Theophilus funded Luke's project to be able to travel around and gather all of these stories and compile them together would take a, a patron of some sort. So many believe Theophilus might be that patron. And Luke says the reason that he's doing this for his friend Theophilus, look at verse 4, this is important, that you may have certainty of the things that you've been taught. That you may have certainty. That's a strong word. So we can conclude from this, just those first four verses, we can say, okay, Theophilus is a believer, he's a follower of Christ, but Luke wants to give him a, like a balm for his doubts, something secure to hold on to, something to give his faith more stability. Luke is saying, Theophilus, I'm going to show you that, that all you have heard about Jesus is not just legends and fairy tales. You don't have to take your pastor's word for it. 
No, brother, there are eyewitnesses to all of it. Everything you heard. Going all the way back to before Jesus was even born, there are trustworthy people who can attest to the validity of these stories. And I've met with these people and I've talked with these people and these are their accounts of what happened. That's what Luke's gospel is. And so for those of you who are trying to figure out how to think about the Bible, like maybe you're a brand new Christian, maybe you're considering Christianity, but you're not quite there. Maybe you, maybe you have some doubts. Luke's saying, I'm here to help you. And this, this should help you. Luke's gospel is written so that you may have a greater confidence in the Christian faith because what Luke has recorded are historical accounts of the events that occurred in Judea in the first half of the first century. So as you read Luke, and I would encourage you, even though we're only doing five sessions of Luke, I would encourage you this, this Christmas to read the Gospel of Luke, as you read it, you're going to see time markers in Luke's Gospel. Things like, this happened while Herod was king of Judea, Judea, or, or Caesar Augustus reigned in Rome at this time, or Quirinius was governor of Syria at this time. And these time markers are, are they're the cross-references so that what Luke writes can be fact-checked against other historians. That's why he's doing that for you. So, so in this regard, Luke's Gospel is an evidence-based documentary that Jesus is the Messiah. That the, the quoted witnesses are giving testimony that all the stories about Jesus are true. And hearing these stories is meant to give us greater certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. But Luke's gospel is more than that. It's more than just history. So when, when we think about what sets Luke's gospel apart from, say, other historical accounts of Jesus... Something you might read from a Roman historian or Jewish historians like Josephus. Luke's gospel is different because like Matthew, Mark, and John, this is scripture. And scripture is written not just by Luke, not by, just by the human author, but, but also by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, through the word, always gives testimony to Christ and glorifies Christ and so instructs us as the readers in how to follow Christ. So what you're going to, to find as we read Luke's Christmas accounts together this Advent season is Luke is doing more than simply relaying historical information to us. He's also shepherding us. He's also teaching us what it means to receive Christ. And he's showing us what saving faith in Christ is through these stories. So my hope for you is that as we read these Christmas stories of Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna, and we see their faith and we hear their joy in receiving Jesus as the Christ, my hope is that you would have the same faith and receive Christ with the same joy. So we're beginning our Advent series with Elizabeth, which is kind of unusual. Elizabeth is the wife of Zechariah the priest. And since we're starting here, you probably recognize we skipped some stuff, some really important stuff. So let me catch you up on what we missed as we're diving into Luke's gospel with verse 39. 
Luke's gospel begins with Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. He's a priest. He's in the temple. He's on the rotation for serving in the temple and is chosen by Lot to offer the incense in the holy place. And while he's in the temple one night, an angel named Gabriel shows up and tells him his barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And that son will prepare the hearts of Israel to receive the Messiah. In other words, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah is going to be the Elijah prophet that we read about in Malachi 4. Zechariah has some doubts. Zechariah doubts this will happen because he's old and Elizabeth's old. And Elizabeth has been barren for a long, long, long time. And so, so Zechariah says, okay. I'm going to need a sign. Prove that what you say is true. And Gabriel, the angel, gives him a sign, but it's not what Zechariah had in mind. Gabriel makes the priest mute and tells him, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until the baby is born. The previously barren wife, Elizabeth, then miraculously conceives a child. Very, very similar to the stories that we've been reading in Genesis, isn't it? The, the, the barren, older woman conceives a child, and then Luke says she goes into hiding for five months. The next month, so the sixth month of her pregnancy, the same angel Gabriel shows up to a young teenage girl named Mary, who happens to be related to Elizabeth. And Gabriel tells this virgin girl that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her. She's going to conceive a child who will be the Messiah, the Son of God. And he then tells Mary... By the way, Elizabeth, your relative, is also miraculously pregnant. And the conclusion of that, what we call the Annunciation, is that Mary believes the word of God. And that's really important. Mary believes the word of the Lord. Unlike Zechariah, she does not ask for a sign. She simply accepts the word of the Lord as truth. So, so contrasting, as it was in their introduction to Luke, so contrasting Zechariah the priest who teaches God's word and serves in the temple and knows all the Bible stories about how God brings life to barren wombs and teaches those stories to other people, contrast Zechariah to Mary, the country girl from Nazareth, who probably doesn't know how to read. Between the two, Zechariah does not at first believe the word of the Lord but Mary does. So already in the first chapter of Luke, there is one person who has faith, and there's one person who does not. And the one with faith is not the one we would expect it to be. With, with, with unbelieving priestly Zechariah and believing Mary, Luke is, is giving us a preview. He's foreshadowing how the rest of Jesus' ministry is going to go isn't he? The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees and those educated, prominent Jews we expect to recognize Messiah, well, they don't. In time and again, it's the poor, the outcast, the foreigner, the sinners who were given faith and so receive Christ. So that's the beginning of Luke, that's all of Luke, and that's the context that brings us to our text. And what we're going to see in our passage as we look to Mary and Elizabeth we're going to see five marks of true faith. So if that story is all about those who have faith and those who don't in Christ, here are five marks at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. 
that are marks of true faith. The first mark that we're going to see in this story is that faith is magnetic. Number one, faith is magnetic. The second mark of true faith is that faith is divine. The third is that faith joyfully magnifies Christ. The fourth is that faith is humble. And the fifth, faith is believing. So let's look at the first one, the magnetism of true faith. We see this magnetism of true faith in verses 39 and 40. When she heard the news of her pregnant relative, so Mary, Mary receives all this, this announcement about what will happen to her, and then she hears the news of her pregnant relative, Mary goes to visit her. She goes to visit Auntie Elizabeth, the miraculously pregnant wife of the miraculously mute priest. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, we don't often ask this question, but you know I like to ask these types of questions. Why questions? Why has Mary gone to see Elizabeth? And to give you a little context here, why this is a why question, Mary is probably in her early teens. Elizabeth is probably in her 70s or beyond. Mary lives up north in the north country in Nazareth. Elizabeth lives in the south in the hill country in Judah. And this is not just a walk to the end of the cul-de-sac. This is probably anywhere from 60 to 90 miles away. We don't know exact because we don't know the exact town that Elizabeth's in. But this is at least a three or four day walk for Mary. And remember, young girl. And yet Mary receives the news of her own pregnancy and hears of Elizabeth's pregnancy and immediately packs up her things to go see her. Why? But what would you do? Would you want to stay in town as an unmarried pregnant girl and try to convince everyone that your pregnancy was from the Holy Spirit? Who's going to believe her? Mary goes, she leaves town, she goes to the one person she knows will believe her, Elizabeth. Elizabeth will believe her because Elizabeth has also just received a miracle from the Lord. But, but this, this sweet congregation of two is, is more than just an affinity group. This is God's providence in bringing them together. The Lord in his providence is bringing together the two people through whom he is working so that they might encourage and edify one another. Do you see that? This, this providential uniting of Mary and Elizabeth is in some sense like the first little church gathering. These two women have received the good news of the gospel and have, at the hand of God, gathered together to encourage one another in the faith. There's even a little preacher inside the womb. Faith in this regard is magnetic. Those who are truly of faith, those who are believing God's promises, are drawn to others who share the same faith. It shouldn't surprise you that the church shares this characteristic with Mary and Elizabeth. Like Mary, we have received the Christ in us by the power of the Spirit, and by God's leading, we have sought out others whom God is working through. Christians are magnetically drawn to other Christians. You see this happening at the very beginning of the first church in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit descends, there's repentance and faith, and those who have received Christ are all baptized, and then they start gathering together as soon as they can and as often as they can. This is so much, this is so much a mark of faith 
that the Apostle John says in 1 John that if you don't have this magnetism, if you don't love other Christians, you don't have faith in Christ. You haven't truly received Christ because faith is by its nature magnetic. It draws you to other Christians. Mary goes with haste, like a North Pole to the South Pole, with haste to see Elizabeth. Now, before we get to the second characteristic of faith, I want to just take a step back and make some observations here, and and hopefully you'll see them too, about how the Bible talks about life in the womb. So we take a pause from our list of five. We have our first characteristic of faith that is magnetic. Now put a parenthesis if you're taking notes, and let's talk about life in the parentheses, in the womb. Elizabeth, at this point in our story, is six months pregnant. Meanwhile, Mary is anywhere from four days to 12 days pregnant. Four days if she left home the morning after the Annunciation, maybe 12 days if she waited or she lingered or she stopped some places along the way. But Luke says she went with haste, so I tend towards that lower number of the two. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. She walks in the door, greets Elizabeth, and look what happens. Look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. She's talking about in Elizabeth's womb. Luke Luke uses the word baby there to describe the life inside of Elizabeth's womb. Baby. In the Greek, the word means baby. That's the same word that you see in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, when the angel tells the shepherds, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Outside the womb, baby, outside the womb, in swaddling clothes. It's the baby. It's the same thing. So the Bible speaks of a baby in the womb and a baby outside of the womb with the exact same language. Elizabeth's unborn child is a baby. So biblically speaking, there is no distinction between a human life at six months gestation and a human life who has made it through the birth canal to the outside. Both are babies. Now look at verses 41 and 42. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So there's something in her womb there. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, setting aside the massive theological implications of what Elizabeth is saying here, the life in Mary's womb is not even the size of a poppy seed. It doesn't even have a heartbeat, probably not even implanted in the side of the uterus yet. And yet Elizabeth calls Mary, do you see that? Mother of the Lord. So Mary, who has just barely conceived, is already a mother. And the being in her womb already has personhood because he is already considered Elizabeth's Lord. And what... Or rather, who is Elizabeth's source of biological information about what's happening in the womb? It's God himself. Elizabeth learned this from the Holy Spirit when the little rutabaga-sized prophet in her womb leaped for joy the moment Mary, carrying microscopic blastocyst Jesus, walked into the room. I'm pointing this out to you because I want you to see, I want you all to see, that what the Bible teaches I want you to see what the Bible teaches about when life begins. Are you seeing it? And when personhood begins. And this passage shows us very plainly 
life begins at conception. If we were to say, no, 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 life doesn't begin until implantation, then God is wrong and Mary is not the mother of the being inside of her. And he can't be called Lord. If we wait until a a heartbeat to say, that's a human life, well, then the Bible is wrong here. If we wait until the, Bible, until the baby can feel pain to say that's a person, then the Bible is wrong. If we wait until the baby is born to say that's a baby, then the Bible is wrong about Jesus and John. So to speak of human life, to speak of life in the womb the same way that God does here, speaking through Elizabeth, we must say that human life begins at conception. I missed that opportunity to, to show you this with Jacob and Esau in, in the womb in Genesis, and I didn't want to miss it here. Okay, so, so here we have an even smaller baby human who is said to have personhood, and that instructs us as Christians and as human beings as to when life begins. All right, so there's, there's that parentheses about what the Bible teaches about when life begins. You can close the parentheses. Let's get back to the subject of faith. Moving now, we're moving now from the magnetic faith of Mary to the faith of Elizabeth. The second characteristic of faith is that faith comes from God. So barely pregnant Mary has come to visit very pregnant Elizabeth, and as they are greeting one another, Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb. Look at verse 41 again. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, just so you know, that word leaped, there, the word leaped in verse 41, the baby leaped in her womb, that is the exact same word that we read in Malachi, Malachi 4, 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So the baby prophet isn't doing his normal baby kick and roll. This, there, there is an emotional, morally charged element to his movement. He's in the womb leaping with joy because he is like the calves in the stall in Malachi. He's celebrating the arrival of the day of the Lord. He's celebrating the arrival of Messiah. He's celebrating Christ's arrival and in turn communicating that good news to his mother. He kicks her. It's the only thing he can do. And when she receives John's message, she's filled with the Holy Spirit and she responds in faith to John's message. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, is the one who gave Elizabeth that faith. This is the same pattern that faith comes to us. We hear the message of the Christ, that is, we hear the gospel, and the Holy Spirit, God himself, accompanies the message and brings faith in Christ, in that message. The third mark of faith is that it is joyful. Faith joyfully receives Christ. This is the third one. We see this further in Elizabeth's response. She's filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 41. And then verse 42, Elizabeth doesn't speak. She exclaims with a loud cry based on what she says. Some even say Elizabeth is singing here. She's singing verses 42 and 43. Regardless, John's message is contagious. He leaps for joy. Elizabeth receives this good news with the same joy because of the Spirit in her. And there's this joyful exuberance in receiving Christ in faith. 
Look at her exclamation of faith. She says, Mary is blessed because she carries the Christ. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth is celebrating, joyfully celebrating the arrival of Christ into her home. She's recognizing here, Mary is carrying the promised Christ. That's why she calls Mary blessed and why she's so joyful about the child inside of Mary. Now, as it happens, here's your biblical theology tidbit for the day. There is only one other woman in all the Bible who is described as blessed among women. To find this woman, we have to go to the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, there's a Gentile woman named Jael who gives the enemy of Israel, a man named Sisera, warm milk to drink to get him to sleep. Sisera goes to sleep, and Jael, while he's sleeping, drives a tent peg through his skull so that it goes through to the other side and into the ground. Thus, in keeping with Genesis 3.15, she crushes the head of the enemy of God's people. She crushes the head of the offspring of the serpent. Well, in response to Jael's heroism, the first Christmas song is sung in celebration. And one of the lines to that song, Judges 5.24, says, Most blessed of women be J.L. That's what we saw about Mary. Most blessed of women be J.L., the wife of Heber, the Kenite of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Fa la la la, la 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 la. I cannot say with certainty that Elizabeth is comparing Mary to J.L. But come on. She's the wife of a Bible scholar. And the songs of the Old Testament were often sung in the synagogue. For Elizabeth to call Mary blessed among women as she sings her song, she's at least, at least echoing a well-known song of victory over the enemy. And Mary, like J.L., is most definitely carrying the object that God will use to crush the head of the serpent. Blessed be Mary among women and blessed be the child in her womb who will destroy the enemy. So faith, even in graphic songs, faith joyfully receives Christ. The fourth characteristic of true faith, and this one is the most obvious, the fourth characteristic of true faith is humility. Faith is humble. Look at verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, we've already seen that Elizabeth is recognizing that Mary is the mother of the Lord. And that's very likely a Psalm 110 reference. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Elizabeth is calling baby Jesus her Lord. And we see humility here because Elizabeth is humble and she knows she is undeserving to receive the Christ. Why is it granted to me? That's her question. Why me? 
All who have faith in Christ have this same humility. Did you know that? Psalm 149, verse 4, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Elizabeth did not earn a visit from the Lord here. She's not being rewarded for something great that she did. Likewise, we do not earn Christ and so receive salvation in him as a sort of prize or an achievement. No, Christ comes to us while we are yet sinners. That's why the Bible says we are saved by grace. We receive in him, we receive him in faith according to the mercy of God. The mercy of God. But to admit this, to confess, I am undeserving of this, as Elizabeth does, that's a humble confession, and it's characteristic of true faith, saving faith. When we sing, and can it be, we are singing in the spirit of Elizabeth. We're asking the question, and can it be that I should gain? Why me? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Did he really die for me? Because I'm the one who caused his pain. This doesn't make sense. I don't deserve this. Amazing love. How can it be? This is one of the areas, out of all of these marks of faith, this is one where I think we have more difficulty than we're willing to admit. In a culture like ours, where individual self-expression is the norm and authenticity to the self is the highest virtue and self-esteem is the greatest good, confessing our unworthiness is countercultural, isn't it? It, it? it is a cultural taboo to say we are unworthy of anything good. In our culture, we're basically, we're all basically good, and because we're all basically good, we, we, we deserve whatever, whatever good we desire. But that's contrary to biblical truth. That's not what the Bible teaches. According to Scripture, none of us is worthy to receive what Christ brings. None of us. And Elizabeth knows it. So she says, why is it granted to me? How, how can this be? How has this gift been giving, given to me? Humility, like Elizabeth's humility here, humility always, always, always accompanies true faith. Faith is humble. Finally, number five, faith believes. Elizabeth now is going to point us back to Mary's faith. So we've been observing Elizabeth's faith for just a few points. And now we're going back to look at Mary's faith and look what she says about Mary's faith. It gives us the final marker of true faith. Verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Look at that carefully. Blessed is she, speaking of Mary, blessed is she who believed. Why? Because without any signs, without any evidence, simply because the message was from the Lord himself, she believed. She believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She believed that what God said would happen, would happen. She believed God at his word. And though I say that this is a mark of faith, it's actually kind of a truism. Saying that this is a mark of faith is like saying red is the color red. This, this is what faith is by definition. 
Faith, by definition, is believing God at his word. Going all the way back to Genesis, when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we learned that's what faith is. Luke is teaching us here through Elizabeth's words that Mary has that same faith. Abraham's faith. Without seeing what God was doing, Mary believed God at his word. Friends, this is the kind of faith that saves. To believe God's promises will come to pass, to believe God at his word, that's what saving faith is. And this is the kind of faith, the quality of faith, that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of faith that magnifies Christ in our lives and minimizes the self in humility. This is the faith that draws us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is saving faith. And if this describes the faith that you have, friends, you are in the company of Mary and Elizabeth this Christmas. And it has been granted to you by God to be visited by Christ. Be encouraged that you are not alone. Be humbled, be joyful, and exalt Christ in your life. And know that just as Mary and Elizabeth were waiting expectantly for for the Christ that they could not see yet, you are waiting for his return. And you can't see him yet. But you have one another. You have the assurance of his word and the confidence that Luke is communicating to us. But if what you have taken to be faith in Jesus, so, so if, if that first group doesn't describe you, and, and, and you instead, if what you have taken to be faith in Jesus does not share any of those characteristics, if, if what you call faith is based on your own whims rather than God's word, if your faith does not draw you magnetically to other Christians, if your faith isn't accompanied by humility that confesses your sinfulness and unworthiness, if you do not believe God at his word, then friend, this should be a clarifying morning for you. God has brought you here this morning to show you you're not trusting in him. That can change Right now, by the grace of God, you can have the faith of Mary and Elizabeth and Abraham and Luke in the church of Christ. The kind of faith that binds you to Christ in salvation. Humble yourself and ask God to give you this faith in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.